In a time when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to episode 19 of the Feelin' Film podcast. I'm Aaron, alongside my co-host, Patrick. Roger that. I'm here. Thank you very much. And we are here to talk about one of my personal favorite films, <sighs> and one I consider a classic, not just among <laughs> disaster flicks, but among all movies. That would be Armageddon. <laughs> Well, Aaron, technically, this is one of our second chance picks, and I'm not sure that I think quality that quite that highly of it, but I'm excited to hear why you do. Uh, before we get started, though, let me remind our listeners that we have a growing backlog of episodes that can be found on your various podcast outlets like iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, and now iHeartRadio. You can also check us out on our website and any no- a number of places that you choose to listen. Uh, we'd love for you to give us a listen and then let us know what you think. Couldn't agree more, my friend. So I guess I will attempt to keep the excitement inside for a few more minutes. I'll try, no promises. Uh, but why don't you tell me what you've been up to this week and I will just uh, sit here and be anxious. <laughs> well, this week I had a chance to do a couple of things. Uh, Thursday, I was um, spending some of my time at home, uh, being off work for a little bit, and I got a chance to go visit the um, the set. Not set. I've got a chance to go help my my buddy Scooter uh, do some shooting for a uh, a car company that he it's one of his clients uh it wasn't anything it wasn't a big deal it wasn't like a major like like car dealership or anything but i wanted to go not only just to give him a hand on some things but to also just check out his processes like how he sets up shots how he goes about kind of you know setting up the scene how he does b-roll things like that because i don't know that side of things like he knows a ton about lenses and about aperture and about how to use certain lenses and whatnot. And I really just wanted to get a good idea of how he worked his, uh, his stuff, like how he was able to do his thing because we're going to be working together on some short films probably in the, in the near future just to get us uh, some practice. We're also working on a, another project for um, a TV show here in Little Rock. That is not a shameless plug. That's just something I just want to mention, <laughs> but we, we, have only had a chance to work together on the 48. So to be with him in his element doing and seeing what he does, it was really educational for me. So I had a good time with that. I have also been spending most of this week going through some of my game collection. Now, as most of you know, yeah, check it out. (laughs) It's crazy. I am not a gamer. At least I don't claim to be. I have a handful of games that I play, but every once in a while I'll snag a humble bundle here and there, if you guys know what the humble indie bundle is, uh, just um, I won't go into details about that. But I decided to go through my, you know, somewhat extensive list—not a huge library, but um, the list of games that I have not played—and just kind of give them some playability. You know, spend about half an hour to forty-five minutes to an hour on some that I have not visited since I've made the purchase. Like usually with humble bundle, there's one game that I want, so. I'll play that and then I'll kind of ignore the other three or four that come with it. 
And so my goal was to go through each of the other games that I haven't checked out and uh, have, have had a really good time. There's one particular game. It's a, I think it's a puzzle game and it's called Circuit. And it's, you, you're basically replicating a, an acoustic or a musical circuit, like a, like a sound wave based on sounds that you hear. So you can play it like you'll, there'll be a pattern that you play through and you use your headphones, you, you listen to the sound. And then when you go back, you have to replicate that with all the sounds mixed up. So it's sort of like, you know, I, I don't know how to describe it, but it's what appeals to me is the music itself is very cool. It's kind of like this ambient chill out music stuff that I'm kind of into. And so not only is it fun to play, but it's also a pleasure to listen to. So I've been playing quite a bit of circuit lately. Wow. Was not expecting that at all. <laughs> I like to, I like to leave you, leave you in, uh, in, in disbelief sometimes. Well, it sounds cool. I don't think it sounds like my kind of game though, but uh, it definitely makes sense that it's up your alley and yeah. it's a good recommendation for anybody that wants something of that nature. Yes, sir. How about you? What have you been up to this week? Gaming as well for me this week. Uh, anybody who's keeping up with most gaming news on a regular basis will know that this was the release week finally for No Man's Sky, which is an ambitious game from a very small company called Hello Games, uh, whose lead designer's name is Sean Murray. And it's interesting that we know that because Sean Murray, I don't know a lot of lead developer names, I guess is where I'm going with this. And yet I know this one because this game has been in development for, gosh, going on three years now, at least in the news, major hype train around this one. And it's all about getting out and exploring the universe. Uh, it's procedurally generated. So you're not supposed to know, or you're not supposed to be able to have the same thing happening over and over and over because it's randomized. And the game really just sets you out on a course in space, uh, these millions and millions of planets in the game world and says, go explore, go forth, trade, mine, uh, make money, shoot down space pirates, find stuff, and uh, eventually maybe you'll get to the center of the universe. I've been mostly impressed with it so far. Uh, I say that because I'm a little nervous about it because it's got I'm not sure how much long-term value it has for me, uh, whether it's going to become too repetitive or not. But so far, I've put in 13, 13 hours or so on it, and I'm immersed. I'm completely glued to every single planet that I go on. It's funny because I keep telling myself, I need to get to this next planet and you know see what's out there. I need to get closer to the, the end goal, but I'll spend four hours on a single planet trying to name everything and find every animal and and while I'm doing those same kind of three or four tasks on every single planet I come to, I find myself just wanting to do them all. And uh, every time I you know, get ready to leave and go into space, another icon pops up and I'm like, oh, shiny. Time to go get that one. So I'm having a lot of fun with it. I am a science fiction fan, a sci-fi geek, really. Uh, space travel just makes me happy. Uh, I mean, it fits in perfectly with the movie we're reviewing today. There are no asteroids. Well, there are asteroids actually in my game and I can shoot them down with my spacecraft. So if only America could have had that technology when Armageddon <laughs> was made, could have avoided this whole nightmare. 
But yeah, man, No Man's Sky is, um, it's a neat, very relaxing kind of game. Um, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it so far. I'm glad you are. I remember asking you about it several months ago when I was hitting um, a period of, of gaming renaissance when I was purchasing some of these humble bundles. And I remember asking you, you know, what do you think? Are you going to get it? And I think I remember you specifically saying that it kind of was a turnoff for you because most of the games that you play have a finite narrative. In other words, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And because this is such an open world environment, um, I remember your initial reaction to possibly purchasing it was a bit apprehensive because of that fact. Um, have your thoughts changed? Well, yes, I think they have. I think I'm changing as a gamer and as a person as I grow older. And I, I'm hoping that that's the case because I would like to continue playing games, you know, well into my forties and fifties and basically my whole life. I see no reason to stop. I enjoy the hobby and I think it's just a matter of the type of games I play changes. Um, you know, recently I think I talked about on the podcast, Stardew Valley has taken me by storm as well. And that's another one. It's just a chill simulation. And really that's what No Man's Sky is. It's a simulation. You know, I'm not doing that normal thing that you were talking about. We call it uh, a theme park ride, a theme park game. Uh, because it's, you're, you're within a theme park. You're not in a sandbox. You know, you, you have <laughs> these things you can do and play, but then when you leave the park, you're done. But in a sandbox type open world game, which No Man's Sky is, is it's like this endless thing with very, very little direction. And usually in the past, I have gotten lost in that. Uh, but for some nice. reason, I'm just finding myself enjoying the relaxing flow. And frankly, my, my 13 year old daughter is completely into this game. I wish I could play some of the voice messages I've gotten on the podcast because she is just having a blast and it's hilarious listening to her <laughs> um, go crazy. She's naming every planet after cats. So if you come upon a planet like called Meow, Meow Yell or, uh, you know, feline area or anything cat related, <laughs> you can bet that my daughter probably was there. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, let's get off cat planets and let's talk about our planet and the destruction or potential destruction of it by a crazy asteroid as we dive in to this week's episode of Armageddon. And before we do, as always, the announcement that there will be spoilers. I'm assuming if you're listening to this, you have seen Armageddon at least once since it released a few years ago. But if you haven't, come back later or don't come back later. Well, we'd like you to come back later, but, you know, see the movie first because you'll get more fun out of it. Agreed. And since this is a wholeheartedly a favorite of mine, I know that it's not in your pantheon of top 50 films of all time. <laughs> we have had a conversation on this podcast several times about your feelings toward Michael Bay, the director. Um, and uh, Michael Bay. Yes, Michael Bay. It's Baypocalypse, baby. So <laughs> I want to start by finding out what you thought of this on rewatch. What is it? I mean, it's almost 20 years later at this point. I guess it's 18, yep. 18 years later. No, I can't do math. 18 years later, I can do math. Came out in 1998. So 18 years after this movie is first released, Patrick, you probably first saw it when, gosh, you were 19 or 20. So yeah. what is what is mature adult seasoned Patrick think about Michael Bay's epic Armageddon non-college patch. Um, I gotta tell you, I liked it uh, quite a bit. Yes. And, fist bump. 
Sorry. Just <laughs> and and there were there were uh, two observations I made. You know, we've we've seen Michael Bay and his style, and there have been any number of articles and web series talking about either just his overuse of certain things or his abundant use of this or that. And I myself have gone on record or even off record of talking about how I don't prefer him as a director because of the sheer amount of something that he uses. When I'm watching this movie, there is no shortage of explosions. Uh, It's very rock and roll, which is just his style. But what I think made this movie enjoyable for me was it wasn't just him at the helm. He was directing it. So his vision was cast, but he had incredible screenwriters. One of which was an up and comer named JJ Abrams. That's right. Which was very impressive to me. And maybe I was biased going into it the second time after knowing that because the screenplay just blew me away. You know, it was a great, great screenplay. And you have an, I believe an EP by the name of Jerry Bruckheimer that was overseeing the whole project. And what I see is that artists of any kind, Michael Bay included, have the ability to do what they do really well. And when you constrain it, when you put it in context, when you kind of massage it and kind of make it you know, like a sculpture, like a work of art, it can be something pretty incredible. It didn't feel overblown. I mean, there were lots of explosions and granted, in some of in, in some of them, I'm like, wow, that's just that's just a lot of destruction. But in some ways, in a lot of ways, they were completely justified. And there were there were parts of the movie that I didn't really resonate with, particularly the first third of the movie. What what I loved in particular was the comedic scenes. I thought every scene that was supposed to be funny was funny, and every scene that was supposed to be dramatic was dramatic. But they were like little pieces and parts in this first third of the movie. So you go from like something that was making you laugh and then you go to a bum, 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 dramatic scene. And then you jump back to a piece that was very funny. In and of themselves, they were great. But it wasn't until they get on the rocket. And that's when I was all in. Because at that point, it became a thrill ride, adventure, drama. With a, and everything felt like it synced up in terms of the dialogue, the music, the action, all of it felt like a really, like I was starting, I was gripping my wife's hand. We were watching it together and she was gripping my hand. And that's when it felt like a real good movie experience to me. And I think all that has to do with the fact that you have this trifecta of, of directing with great vision. I mean, we still get the dramatic sweeping camera pans across the room and these big slow-mo effects and these you know, 360 spins from Michael Bay. But we get a great screenplay that kind of constrains the dialogue and, and, and keeps it poppy with you know, all that. And then we have, I think, to me, I think when you have a cocktail of Abrams, Bruckheimer, and Bay, what you get is a great action movie like Armageddon. And I had a great time with it. I really enjoyed it. Well, I'm extremely glad to hear that. I was hoping you would this one is super close to my heart I, I i don't even know why we can try to explore maybe why i, I maybe i i just don't i don't know that i can trace it back to any one particular reason 
But for some reason, this thing has just always stuck with me and always been emotionally devastating as far as all my emotions go. It just sucks me in. And I loved how you put it just there about how when you said you were taught, you were, you're gripping your, your wife's hand while you're watching it. Like that's what this movie does to me from beginning to end. It makes me feel. And that's, that's why I want to talk about it so bad because it fits the title of our show, right? I mean, the emotional experience that you have when watching movies sometimes can just transport you. And for me, that's what Armageddon does. The, the first time that I saw it, I was in the Navy boot camp. Um, so I'm, I'm a, I'm a sailor, uh, or former sailor. And I remember going to see it in the theater that first time and then seeing it multiple times in the theater after that. Uh, countless, really, I just, I just, I don't even know how many times I saw in the theater. I just remember going over and over and over and over. I, we loved it. Uh, the soundtrack. Immediately bought the soundtrack. Uh, it's an Aerosmith heavy soundtrack. And it's got just old classic Aerosmith. And then, of course, it's got, you know, features the new song, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, which is the the key track in Armageddon. And it was interesting because this synced up really well with me going to an Aerosmith concert the year, the next year. Um, and so it just, this movie just kind of stayed with me because the whole time I was watching Aerosmith, you know, they played that song. I'm thinking about this movie. Um, it also came out the year that I got engaged for the first time. So I'm wondering if that had something to do with it. Cause there's some very emotional stuff, you know, going on in the film between, you know, Affleck and Liv Tyler's characters. Um, as they're getting engaged and, you know, I was going away. Maybe that's what it, maybe that's part of what it was. I, I vaguely recall that, you know, I'm, I'm here. I am this new sailor. I've been away for a year for training and I get engaged. And as soon as I get engaged, I'm leaving for six months to go on a cruise and I'm going to Spain and France and Italy. And I'm leaving this fiance behind. And I mean, I'm not going to my death, uh, assumedly, you know, I'm not going to, to blow an asteroid up either. Uh, but I was on a minesweeper, so it's actually not too much different. <laughs> I could have been. Um, so I don't know. I, I, these are just things that have ki- I've kicked around in my head the last few days having, uh, since having rewatched this film. Um, I, I even at one point, I love this movie so much. Um, a lot of people don't. A lot of people hate it nowadays. It's, it's one of those films that everybody liked when they first saw it. Kind of like Avatar. And then now a lot of people are like, oh, Armageddon, blah, blah, gross, gross, gross. Um, and they get all high and mighty about it when in reality they like paid to see it four times themselves. <laughs> but I had, a, I was dating someone a few years ago and I had told her about my love for this movie and she just was just railing on it. And I was like, have you watched it since 1998? And she said, no. And I said, well, let's, I want you to watch it with me. Let's watch this movie. And so she said, well, I'll watch this if you watch one of my favorite movies. And it was one that I, you know, that a lot of people didn't like. It's called uh, Dancer in the Dark. I don't know if you ever heard of that. I have not heard that. It's Bjorn. <laughs> okay. So Bjorn is the man, is the actress in this movie. Okay. Um, not a fan, <laughs> personally. Um, it's got a lot of critical acclaim, but a lot of people are just, I mean, not, not Bjorn. Is it Bjork? Bjorn. I said Bjorn. Is it Bjork? <laughs> yes, I think it's I don't Bjork. even know how to say the, the the name of the the singer in this. And I'm not saying she's not good in the movie, but it just it was not my cup of tea. And so we had a night where we just sat here on the couch and we watched both of these. And at the end of the night, we both basically agreed that 
we liked our movie and not the other person still. So <laughs> it was a wash. You know what? But it was a good experience. And yeah. I don't know. I, dude, for me, just everything about this film connects. Um, rewatching it the other night, I laughed out loud multiple times. Mm-hmm. I, I find myself crying multiple times, like actual man tears, not just welling up, but like I, I, I let loose in this film for some reason. Um, and then, you know, I, I stand up and cheer in this movie. Like I'm out of my seat. I'm out of my couch. I know what's going to happen. I've seen it dozen times. Like it's not a surprise, but there's something about the way this movie is put together, uh, that, that is just so rousing to me. And I think that's a great place for us to start, honestly, because I believe that one of the most impressive things about this film, uh, is the score and that it takes me to that emotional place when it needs to in all the different types of emotions that it wants me to feel. Do you agree? I absolutely do. And it doesn't surprise me. The score was written by Trevor Rabin and his stuff should evoke emotions. He's the guy behind other feel good movies like remember the Titans, gridiron gang, glory road and Flyboys. And he also did some action movies like National Treasure, Bad Boys 2, also a Michael Bay production. Oh, man. You're making me want to rewatch those. And Gone in 60 Seconds. Oh, there's and one. Gone in there 60 you go. Seconds. That's a great movie. Yeah. So as a, as a composer, he has the ability to create that fist pump response from an audience. Uh, if I can use Remember the Titans for an example, I was in the theater watching it. And people stood up and clapped during the climax. But what I remember, not only was that moment of the guy running down the field and scoring a touchdown, but the but the score just swelling up. And I want to say, I need to go back and watch both Remember the Titans and Armageddon kind of closely, but I believe he used a piece of his theme from Armageddon as one of the main themes for Remember the Titans. I remember recognizing it or at least finding it familiar. And he has that ability to do it. I think he's a great composer for that. And I don't think it's a mistake or a coincidence that in a movie like this that evokes so much response from its audience, whether it's laugh out loud funny stuff or heart gripping action or eye swelling crying, I think his score fits perfectly and it was great. It was a, it was a great choice for, for Michael Bay and his crew. Yeah, it really was. And it's funny because I, I didn't know his name and that leads me to believe he's a little under, underappreciated. Uh, you know, there's a lot of composers whose names I know um, and that are very familiar to me over the course of their mini films, but this is not one of them. And yet, you know, I'd put this score up there with, you know, <laughs> It's hard to say that it is the equal of something like a John Williams score, but if I was going to kind of compare it to something, I look at like a Jurassic Park, right? Mm -hmm. And Jurassic Park just has that ability to take the visual that you are seeing on screen. So when they're first flying into Isla Nublar on the helicopter... And there's mm-hmm. just a sweeping camera angles and you're really getting that first sense of the just epicness of this place, how big it is, how lush it is, how unique of a, of a island it is. 
and you have that score in the background and leading up to your dun 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 dun, you know, and it just, it just transports you. And it, right. I guess it, it, it amplifies your feeling. So you're already having that feeling and that sense of wonder and it amplifies that and it ratchets it up to 11. And yeah. that's what I thought that he did in this movie multiple times. I was, you know, if my, if my sadness was at an eight, his score took me to 11 and just put mm-hmm. me over the top to where I couldn't right. contain myself. And I think the power of music is really amplified when you you see what it looks like without music. There are several videos out there that are pretty hysterical. One is um, Rocky without music running up the stairs, just showing, you know, just, and all you hear is him breathing. And that Andy, sounds boring. And somebody, well, it's boring, but it's also hilarious because somebody's, you know, they've dubbed some like breath and all that. There are other ones. I showed my wife one from, from, from Footloose, the scene where Kevin Bacon is basically dancing his frustration away inside the warehouse without music. And it's hilarious, but it also makes a point that personally, if I saw all the action that I saw without music, I would think, well, look, it's Michael Bay exploding things all over the place. There's no, you know, that's just, uh, just, that's just excessive. And I think what Rabin does with his scent, with his score is he balances it. He brings, he, he brings emotion, but he brings a little bit of, of just theatrical balance to what you're seeing on screen because there's a lot. I mean, there is a lot of visual stuff going on this entire movie. And I think his score restrains it to the point of being a good thing, which overall, that's what I think of a personal criticism that I have with Michael Bay is that he, he doesn't have restraint. And I think, again, going back to what I said earlier, I think that's why Armageddon works is because Michael Bay had restraint and the things that helped restrain him elevated the movie, um, the sound, the score and the screenplay. I mean, can we just, can we just dive into that for a few minutes? Because the screenplay was amazing. Not uh, yeah. Only, I mean, the dialogue in this film is incredible. Yeah, for sure. I, I thought it was a little choppy at first. I think Liv Tyler, when we first get introduced to her, she says Harry about 13 times between when we first meet her and that first oil explosion happens. <laughs> well, she is definitely the weakest character of the movie, in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree. But you have, I think one of the hardest things you can do as a writer is to create space for an ensemble cast sorkin does this really well with like the west wing newsroom he gives identity with his dialogue and i think that jj abrams and his partner i cannot remember the guy's name i know it was two people that worked the screenplay had the ability to give give air give you know verbal breathing room to each character with the exception of maybe two but i think each person became very identifiable by the time the movie ended because of the way in which they were given time to say things because of the relationships dialogue wise that they were having with each other. And, and that's hard to do. And, and I thought they did it really well in this one. Yeah, I did too. I, you know, it's funny because this movie gets a lot of flack for being not scientifically accurate. Uh, I believe I read a meme at one point during this week where someone had said that NASA uses Armageddon to show its trainees 
and have them point out the inaccuracies. And there's something like 168 or something. <laughs> inaccurate. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, the very first scene, the explosion in space, you're not supposed to hear that. It's space. You can't hear explosions in space. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's that's definitely a starting point for that. And it just goes from there. I mean, there's there's tons of stuff that's not realistic about it. But, I mean, not every movie is realistic. In fact, most of our disaster films and blockbusters are not realistic. And I think that's not something we need to hold against movies like this because they're not trying to be real. They're not trying to tell you that this is exactly what would happen. Uh, I mean, we're actually sending drillers to a rock in space to put a nuclear bomb in the middle of it so we can save the planet. I mean, you don't have to go very far to, to realize that this is not meant to be rooted in, you know, true to life realism. Right. Right. I think, and even with that opening scene with the explosion in space and just all the, we mentioned this on a, on a previous episode that when you set something up from the beginning to be over the top, you're telling a, your audience to suspend their disbelief for a little bit. And I think that's what they did, did in this one. Yeah, they did. I agree. They, they did want us to suspend our disbelief and they, and they continued to show that throughout the movie, um, with various scenes and various, um, action pieces. I mean, gosh, there's, there's just so many of them, but getting back to the dialogue, I, this is one of the, the wittiest movies that I can remember, uh, going back quite some time. I mean, there's just from the very beginning, there's, there's great dialogue with, uh, there's giggle moments as I like to call them. Um, talking about, you know, there's, there's one of these kind of throwaway characters in the opening. I don't you know if you remember him, the guy on the bike at with, he has a dog and he gets, he goes up to this big Samoan, uh, who's selling these Godzilla creatures, which I think is hilarious and a great little touch, <laughs> right? In the screenwriting. And that's, that felt like an Abrams kind of thing to me, mm-hmm. having the guy selling Godzilla creatures. Yeah. And the, he, he goes up and he, he gets his dog away from the Samoan who's, you know, upset because the dog's trying to bite his, his inflatable Godzilla. And he just looks up at this huge Samoan guy and he goes, if I wasn't a Christian, I'd be throwing your white pineapple eating butt through a window. (laughs) And it's just like, it just goes from there. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I just, I, I have a smile on my face when I watch it. Um, I get fully immersed in it. I think, it's so good to me that I can't view it as technically good or bad. Um, I can, I can acknowledge some of those faults and even some of the cinematography in it. I, I can fully admit is a little bit like, Oh, come on. You know, like really when you're watching the, the guy, the astronauts like flying through space and bouncing off of the ship, they shut space shuttle behind them, right. you know, scenes like that. And I'm like, Oh, it's Michael Bay. You know, you give that, that Michael Bay sigh that everybody has, but I can't criticize it that much because I care so much about the characters in this film. And I get so invested in their journey. Um, that it just, I feel like I'm right there with them. I feel Mm -hmm. like I'm on my way to save my, my country and save my planet. I feel like I'm on my way to save my family. Um, I feel like it's, it's me who wants to make my dad proud or wants to make my kids proud. Um, and I just get completely swept away by my emotions. Mm-hmm. my sweet I, emotions <laughs> that's good that's good can't can't go an episode without a pun here and there right um i would agree i i think that when when we talk about the movie as a whole 
one of my limitations from the first third was it, it felt, I remember, <laughs> I remember queuing this up and going, this is really two and a half hours. No, this can't be, this is like, this should be like a two hour movie, right? This is, I remember, I remember like almost two hours worth of stuff, but nothing after that. And I remember watching the first third and, and one of the limitations, one of the challenges I had was I felt as though there was a lot that was trying to be set up very quickly. There was a lot of backstory, a lot of, um, in particular, when we get to the little quick montages of the, of the crew just before they're about to take off. And we have, we have chick going to visit his, his, we find out his son that he doesn't know he's, uh, his dad. And, um, we have that tension between he and his, I guess, estranged wife, who, by the way, played April O'Neil in the 1990s Turtles movie. Ching. Little do-do-do-do, the more you know. Hmm. Um, but, while I again, while I liked those scenes individually, and I particularly connected with that one, it felt just a little bit rushed. But what the second, third, and the, the last act of the film did was they paid all that off. And the way in which they did that in just various capacities really made me appreciate and like those scenes even more. Um, I hate that I would have to say you have to see it once and then watch it again to really appreciate that first part. And that's, but that's honestly how I responded to it. I remembered those parts. And once I kind of got, got familiar with them again, by the end of the movie, those parts really helped solidify and and bring those that second half and the and the resolutions to those those little send offs. Um, it, it made them incredibly um, emotional for me, and and I really like those. I couldn't agree with you more. I think the scene in particular that you mentioned with Chick and his son um, is one of the. I mean, there's a lot of scenes in this film that get me teary, but that is probably number two on my list as far as most powerful every single time. I just, as soon as I see it, I'm just like, no, I know it's coming, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, gosh, I'm just feeling so bad for this guy because it's like he just wants to see his son and his son doesn't even know and the, the music is going and, you know, we know what's happening. And, and the the great thing is that the cast is not, it's an ensemble cast, but they are not such superstars that you go into it with the belief that they're all going to make it out alive. Mm. And I don't know if yeah. you caught that, if you felt that way, but for me, you know, there's, there's ensemble cast movies where, you know, if you got Clooney and Damon and Tom Hanks and Christian Bale in your movie, I know they're not dying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But on this one, you know, it's Steve Buscemi. So he's comedic relief and he could reasonably go out. You know, it's Michael Duncan Clark, I believe. Mm -hmm. It's Michael Duncan Clark. Um, is it Michael Duncan Clark? No. I think it's just Michael Dunklin. Dunklin. Duncan. Duncan. <laughs> well, whoever whoever plays uh, Bear. What is Bear. Yeah. Um, I may be getting him confused uh, with another guy. But, uh, you know, again, a known actor, but not someone I couldn't reasonably see going out. Bill Ben Affleck's probably the only one, he and Bruce Willis, that you wouldn't expect. And, of course, <laughs> Lo and behold, <laughs> what happens? Boom! Yeah, yeah, boom! <laughs> one of them, one of them is not getting off that rock. Yeah. Um, but Michael anyway, Clark, Michael Clark Duncan is his name. By it the is way. Michael Clark Duncan. Okay, so I had it backwards. Yeah, cool. Well, that scene 
is so intense for me. And it just, I think that's, that's one thing that the movie does is it just, it, it takes me and heightens my senses for the entire watching period. Um, I, I never, I never get to rest and I need a rest after that film. Like I need to be calm. I need to let myself cool down. Uh, I need to like think about it a little while and just, like I say, go to that place of rest because it has taken me for a ride. Like most blockbusters just can't do these days. So I have a question for you and that is uh, regarding characters. So we started to talk about chick a little bit there. Um, we can start with him, but who are your favorite characters? I mean, everybody in this film seems to have some sort of a story. Like you said, even if it's rushed there in the beginning, over the course of your two and a half hour runtime, we get enough of a picture of each character to become invested in them somewhat. So which ones were easiest for you to connect with? Um, Which ones did you care the most about? Well, I think that the I'll connect this to a particular scene. This was the uh, the montage of the evaluations. I thought was one of my favorite scenes because we got the personality types of each person um, doing various little exercises. Particularly when they were in that like the rubber room, we got to see kind of how each one of them responded. I remember leaving the theater the first time when I saw this just saying that big dude was crying. He was like, I just need a hug or something. And I remember quoting his his name because it was so unexpected. This big dude, which you know, I didn't know who he was. This is long before John Coffey and other roles that he had taken on. Um, so Bear I connected with quite a bit and and Chick as well, because their their particular scenes made me laugh the most. You know, Chick finally just loses it and like slaps that that I don't know what that's called. That little, the, the balls going back and forth, uh-huh. just losing it. But I think when we, when we see chick with his son and he leaves the shuttle, of course, as a dad, I'm going to connect with that. But the thing that for, for, for me, particularly with him was seeing him calm in particularly with the moment that the the nuclear warhead is counting down and you have is it who's the who um who's the quote bad guy the the astronaut up there i can't remember his name colonel sharp yeah so sharp is arguing with harry and they're going back and forth and chick the whole time was like hey it's counting down hey it's getting closer and he has this just this whole calm demeanor and that whole his whole character doesn't change the whole time. I mean, he is just, he's this rock. He's steady. You know, so go ahead. I just got to jump in real quick and say that's, you're so right. And I, I hadn't thought about that until you said it. And you know, it, it happens at the beginning of the film too, because, Mm -hmm. uh, Harry's running around with a shotgun and he's Mm -hmm. just calmly following him around. And he's saying, don't worry. It's okay. Don't worry. And he's like literally shooting him shotgun. Chick's like, it's okay. Be calm. It's all right. And then toward the end, he's like, okay, this is getting a little hot now. <laughs> like Harry yeah. maybe wouldn't want to stop, but you're right. He's, yeah. I had never thought of him like that. Yeah. Um, and your, your perspective on him is, is, um, is spot on. He is, he's a rock. He, and it's funny cause there's somebody else named rock in the movie, but <laughs> chick is really the rock of the film. He's that anchor. 
mm-hmm. of the team. And yeah, and because the thing, one of the things I like about the movie is that we don't know who's going to die. I mean, when first of all, when I saw Owen Wilson kick the bucket, I'm like, okay, all bets are off. I don't know who's going to die. I mean, it could be anybody. By the time we get to the the climax of the film, I don't want Chick to die. Like he was one of the ones I was rooting for, not because he had family back home, but because <laughs> not that other people deserved it. Steve Buscemi deserved it. He should have been the one to go down there and nuke that and set the nuke off. But I didn't want Chick to die because I, I knew that he was probably the one that was okay with it the most mm. because of his level headedness, because of his wow. even keeled. He was okay with, to me, he was okay with doing that. And it made me happy to know that he wasn't one of them. He was uh, a survivor. Yeah. You know, that's, gosh, that's such a great observation about him. That And I mean, I've, again, I love that about this movie. I've seen it a dozen times and um, I'd never really thought of him quite in that way. Uh, but I have thought of him uh, in the sense of a loyal friend and his, his loyalty is just so unquestioning to Harry. Uh, he, he states it on many occasions, you know, we've been with you for this long, you know, we've been through this and, and you know, even the whole team says, you know, we helped raise grace. Uh, but there's, there's a couple times where Harry's or uh, chick is like, listen, uh, are you going? Cause if you're going, you know, I'm going with you. Mm-hmm. And if you're staying on this rock to die, you know, I'm staying with you. I mean, he's got, He's got this unquestionable loyalty. Um, I mean, it really is. It's like it's it knows no bounds. It doesn't matter what. His friendship with Harry is everything to him. Yeah. By the time we get to that moment of the film and we've gotten enough backstory to care about the characters at this point, it makes me want to know more about the backstory. So I want to know about Harry and Chick's relationship before all this. I want to know about Chick's relationship with his estranged wife. How did that happen? What went on? I want to know about um, AJ's relationship with Harry, about those five years that he spent with him. So there's intrigue that may be considered a fault of the movie because we don't get enough, but there's also curiosity that makes us want to know more and therefore maybe care about the characters a little bit more. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Um, it's got it. It does a great job, also f- f- that ties into that thought of foreshadowing. Um, it, it lets you feel the weight of what's coming. Uh, it really, it, it's part of that two and a half hour runtime, I guess. Honestly, uh, that that is a little long, but there's so much of this foreshadowing that occurs. Uh, people start to acknowledge the severity of the situation. And it's something that I haven't, I don't see that a lot in disaster films. Um, They kind of, they don't treat it with the same form of respect that I think the disaster necessarily should be treated with. Uh, This has another great presidential speech in it, kind of like Independence Day's speech. Uh, Maybe better, to be honest, in a way, in some ways. Um, In other ways, maybe not. But it's, it's so rousing and it just it immerses me even deeper in this world because I know that they, they genuinely care. And so it makes me more, you know, have more genuine care for them. One of the characters specifically that I attach to the most in this is actually ironically, uh, 
uh, one of my cousins. So, <laughs> um, this may come as a surprise. The Russian? Was it the Russian cosmonaut? It was the cosmonaut. You are correct, <laughs> sir. 1,000 I, I, I thought I knew there was some Russian in you. A little bit of resemblance. Um, no, it's actually Billy Bob Thornton. Uh, he is You're- my second or third cousin. <laughs> You're laughing, you but serious? I'm serious. I am dead serious. Yes. Um, our great grandfathers are brothers. Can can you can you say mm, give me some French fried potatoes? Mm-hmm. Can you can you do that? Maybe I can. Maybe that that didn't up. come down the genealogical uh, pathway, unfortunately. <laughs> no, there's okay. actually a funny story when I was when I was watching this, and I knew that I was probably going to mention that. I had texted one of my aunts, and I was confirming this because I'd, I've never gotten a chance to meet him. And she was like, "Yep, they they grew up uh, in Malvern, Arkansas, just like us, with me and your mom." And, you know, we never got to hang out with them. She said, when I see you next time, remind me, and I've got some interesting stories to tell you about his side of the family, but our side of the family didn't really have a lot to do with them because they were, let's say, just a little weird. (laughs) Shocker. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) So apparently this goes way back. But yeah, anyway, I am second or third cousins with Billy Bob Thornton. There's my claim to fame. Fantastic, man. And- Back to the movie, you know, this, for me, this is one of his best roles. Uh, I agree. I it, agree with that. It may not be his, his most starring role, but goodness gracious, he is amazing in this film. Um, his character, Dan Truman, he's so layered <laughs> in a, in a blockbuster where he's not even the main guy going onto the asteroid, but he provides uh, a sense of someone that Harry can trust when Harry doesn't trust a lot. You know, Harry, Harry is very much a on my own kind of guy, but he knows he needs Truman down here on the ground. Um, Truman makes him believe in this mission. Truman gets him to that place where he needs to be and understand like, listen, I'm going to get you what you need. You go do the job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it all leads to the end where, you know, Truman has, Truman couldn't go on these missions. Truman has a leg brace. It's something that I have not noticed at all. Multiple times watching this film. Uh, it's so quick. There's a quick, very brief scene where he is raising his uh, pants leg and you see a leg brace on his leg. And that tells us that's why he's not able to go on these missions earlier. He's told Harry how he would love to have a mission patch. And that's the reason it's because he's been injured and he can't go. Um, and so, when he takes all the steps he does to trust them on the asteroid, to give them the time that they need, uh, to believe in them. And then he gets rewarded, you know, in the end by Harry bringing him back that patch. Well, Harry doesn't bring it back the patch. I mean, he does kind of via AJ. Uh, I just, I think it's amazing. I think Truman is the glue to this entire film. And I don't think it could have been, anywhere near the success it was without that character. I agree. I was really, I I was really not invested, but I was impressed seeing Billy Bob Thornton in one of the, in the very first scene when he is talking to the astronaut who appears to be very nervous in space. And he's telling him, you know, I'll give you a Buffalo nickel. If you just calm down and calm your, you know, calm your, Pulse for just you know just just a wee bit, you know he's the he's the head coach that's trying to instill confidence in his in his quarterback. He's the dad that's trying to 
tell his son that it's going to be okay. I mean, he, he's a flight director and I don't know anything about NASA other than I know where space camp is, but to have a flight director, have someone in charge that's in your ear when you're in the deadness of space, that's comforting. And I don't expect that from Billy Bob Thornton. I've seen him in some pretty wacky roles. So to see him as a, as glue, as you describe him, was both a breath of fresh air and, and a very nice surprise. And it was nice to see him fight so much for this crew because he believed in them. He wasn't willing to do anything less than what he could do. And, uh, and that was great. So I like that. I like that you picked him. Well, the other one that I just want to briefly talk about because I don't think he gets enough love from the cosmonaut is it the cosmonaut. Well, it's not. (laughs) He's, he's also on my list though. Cause the cosmonaut is awesome. Yeah. Um, but it's Colonel Sharp. You mentioned him. You you called him the quote unquote bad guy. And he's another character, man. Gosh, everything about this film. There's so everybody has their place. Everybody fits perfectly into this puzzle. It's really amazing. Really, really amazing. Um, but Colonel Sharp, you know, is the lead astronaut basically of the four. Um, he's the most authoritative one that we see. And when he gets up there and is put in the situation of seeing that the drilling is not going to get done. And he goes to his secondary protocol. Um, I really resonate with that whole sequence because, you know, I was in the military. I understand what's happening at this point. I understand the difference between Colonel Sharp and Harry and the crew that Colonel Sharp is following a different set of standards, a different set of ideals and orders and regulations. And he's sworn to those things as a U.S. Air Force uh, airman, astronaut in this case. So that's simply what he's doing. And it's no different than I think anyone in his situation would do. And I can't fault him for that. And so it's really intensely powerful to watch him doing what he believes and feels is right. And then having to come to the point where he questions it and having to put his trust and faith in Harry and his crew above and beyond, you know, his patriotism, his job, his ideals, and all of those things that have made him who he is. He has to lay that all aside to trust this guy. And I love that scene because that's, Harry says something to that effect. He's like, they're not here. The president's not here on this rock, but we are. So, so what are we going to do about it? And, the look on Colonel Sharp's face and the emotion that he displays when Harry says, you know, I will make it. And he's like, promise me, promise me. Like he is, he, he's gritting his teeth. Like he's, he has kids too. And it tells us that earlier in the film, you know, like he cares about his life. He cares about his family and he cares about what's going to happen to the planet. And he's like, promise me. And Harry, Harry says, I will make 800 feet. I swear to God, I will. And I just, Oh man, I just, I love everything about him because his demeanor switches at that point and he's still the same authoritative figure, but he's now part of their team. Mm -hmm. Um, And I love it. I love how that all meshes together. Well, and, and I think you made a good point in saying that some of this stuff 
quickly pays itself off. You know, we 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 find out that he has just uh, the there was a passing line. You've got you've got family, don't you? Two daughters. Yeah, you've got. Uh, don't you want to see them one night? I mean, you know, it, it seemed like just a throwaway line, mm-hmm. you know, just a way to get Harry and his crew, you know, 10 hours of, of leave. And then we see, uh, and this, this was almost my connecting point. So I'm going to go ahead and spoil that and say, this was almost my connecting point. The moment that, that, um, that sharp basically before the transmission goes out, he says, he basically says that you guys are the worst bunch of astronauts that I've ever, you know, he basically insults them. He says, he this says, the biggest- he says, you are the biggest mistake that the, the space program has ever made. Right. And then there's this like long pause in the movie that feels like 10 minutes, but it's really like, like five seconds. And then we see sharps. You mentioned faith. We see his faith get attached to Harry and his crew. And there's a sense of redemption there mm-hmm. where he doesn't lose who he is. I mean, Sharp is still Sharp. He's still, like you said, a patriot. But I loved seeing that redemption in him in saying, I believe in something that matters. It wasn't that this guy's right and this guy's wrong, but my faith is now in this guy and the fact that he says, promise me promise me we're going to, you know, you tell me we're going to do this. I mean, if (laughs) very much, uh, very much a, a doubting Thomas coming to faith in some ways, you had this, just this redemptive moment between him and, and Harry. And, and I love that. I love the fact that we see him become part of that team. And now, um, they're even stronger. They're not at odds anymore even if they may not have been completely before now they're completely unified. Yep. Absolutely. And it's, it's again, a, a, an amazing achievement to be able to pull this off. When you mm-hmm. look at how many people are in this film, one of the, one of the pictures that I'm going to use the screenshots I'm going to use for episode uh, uh, tweets and social media and stuff that I like to share is this picture of all of them, all the astronauts going up and there's a lot of them. When you look at them all in one scene together, you realize, my goodness gracious, look at all these characters. And for them all to have some kind of, re- you know, resonating story to them. I mean, we, we just reviewed Suicide Squad last week, you know, a new film and it has far less characters. And one of our complaints about it is that they don't get enough character development. Whereas here you have one with dozen at least characters that all get some decent character development. It's, it's pretty impressive. And the cosmonauts, one of those. So I got to say one of the best non intentionally funny comedic relief roles ever. I mean, he is awesome to me. I, it, he makes me just laugh so hard and just so much. There's his couple, there's just a couple lines even you know, that it boils down to, to that first one where he, he's going to AJ and he's like, I, that's why I told you touch nothing, a bunch of cowboys, you know, and, it, <laughs> and it's just great. Cause I mean, and especially yeah. it, again, and we go back to the foreshadowing AJ, he's talking to AJ. He doesn't know AJ. He's never met AJ. He doesn't even know at that point that AJ's not an astronaut. Like he's just found out. Right. It's like, what do you mean right. you're not an astronaut? Um, and yet AJ is the one that earlier in the film has been called 
offhandedly remarked as a space cowboy. And then yeah. here's this remark. And they don't feel forced. They feel natural. Like it could be a happy coincidence that those words both got used about the same guy. And it just, it makes me happy to, to mm-hmm. see that happen. Yeah. I, I think seeing him almost juxtaposed against Steve Buscemi's character later in the movie, we get two eccentric people from different, you know, from obviously different motivations. Buscemi is being exposed to, I guess, deep space, you know, craziness or whatever they called it. And he's kind of a little nutty at this point, you know, firing off that. Who has a Gatling gun in space, by the way? (laughs) And why give it to Steve Buscemi or why, you know, how, why let him have that? Um, They didn't. (laughs) Well, yeah, he took it. But I mean, you know, he is unattended at this point. He deserved to be, you know, rigged up with duct tape as he was. But, I, you know, I see the cosmonaut and I see his eccentricness, but his eccentric nature is fueled by a sense of wanting to go home, where Buscemi is like, almost from the very beginning of the trip, he knows it's a one-way mission for himself. And I, by the, by the time we see the antics of the cosmonaut from the space station blowing up uh, to him firing off the thrusters and holding on for dear life to the... Uh, to the um uh, the the drill machine um at by the end of the movie i'm like i really really hope he survives because i've grown to care about him i've grown to care about i hate using the word earned i think that's such an overly used critical word that that is used quite a bit but in this case i felt like his 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 place on the shuttle is earned because oh. of how much he contributed in the short period of time that he had with the astronauts. Yeah, I agree. And it's, you know, it's funny how they, the astronaut references him too, when he gets on board and he's like, you know, how many five souls on board plus one cosmonaut <laughs> we're heavy <laughs> and we're heavy. One cosmonaut, I think is what he says. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I just love how he refers to himself. I will be a Russian hero when I get home. That's why I want to be home. You know, it's just so he's so self-centered, but at the same time, like everything he does is for his own benefit just to get home, but he's still a hero. Oh, he is. And, but, but he says we like, even in the famous quote where he's like American components, Russian components, all made in Taiwan. That's true. That's true. <laughs> this is how we fix problem in Russian space station because I don't want to stay here anymore. Like, <laughs> Finally, we go home. Yes. And it's like, it's just, yeah, like so selfish and centered. Like he's just, it's all about that to him. But right. um, it's almost like he's voicing, he is the conduit of that emotion that they all are feeling, right? They all got to be feeling that. They don't want to be here. They don't want to be in space. They don't want to be on this rock. They're lost. They're scared. They don't know what the heck they're doing. And it's almost like they all have to be feeling that same thing, but they, they have to stay even keeled. They have to keep that in. They have to get this job done. And yet he is that release of that emotion for everybody. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, were there any other characters you connected with? Well, specifically, not as much. No. I mean, I think, yeah, we did it. Well, let's move in to our big segment because I know that you have completely connected with this movie in a lot of ways. And listeners, I got to tell you, there was a text message I received from him early <laughs> on. No, no, said, no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to. 
no, I'm gonna, no, no, I'm no. gonna confess something, guys. He said you can go make dinner and have dinner and come back an hour later, and I should be finished with all of my connecting points. Um, <laughs> you know, so guys, I'll be back in a little bit. I'm gonna go grab a burrito, and I'll leave it to you. Go ahead, take it away, buddy. <laughs> Why? Thank you for that <laughs> gracious uh, Just introduction. Uh, no, for real, I have the ability to have a handful or more of connecting points in this film. Uh, I'm not ashamed to say that I cried when watching it the other night. Again, knowing full well what's going to happen. To me, that is one of the most powerful things that any film could ever do, uh, is to grip me that emotionally when I know exactly what's coming scene for scene. There's no surprise um, at all. But yet, I can just get taken away every single time. So the tears came uh, multiple times. But for me, the one time that the tears come the hardest, uh, every time I watch this movie, is the ending scene. And I usually don't pick the ending scene of films when we're doing a connecting point. It's almost kind of like a cop-out sometimes it feels like because, yeah, the endings are ramped up and they're intentionally big in lots of movies. But there's so much in this one that gets paid off. I'll use the words you you did. The the backstories, um, the foreshadowing, these different little relationships that have been happening, you know, Harry and Truman and um, Sharp and Harry and AJ and Grace. And so because of that, uh, it's got to be the whole ending montage for me. And it, and it kind of starts a little bit before they land. Um, the music kicks in. It's that anthem, that strong Armageddon theme. And we start to see visions and pieces of images of, of kids playing. And we see all over the world, basically, celebration that the asteroid has been destroyed and that they're going to make it. And so we see humanity just overjoyed at the fact that they're going to live. And so that rolls in uh, to essentially what ends up being, you know, them landing. We get a quick comedic point with rock, you know, saying, Hey, you know, let's just leave that stuff on the, on the rock that happened up there, up on the rock. Let's not, uh, let's not talk about that. (laughs) Me with the machine gun, you know, let's not, let's not bring that up. And so I think it's, it's really cool because we get this rousing sense of, happiness and joy that comes from uh, the celebration. And then we get a brief scene of comedic relief where we get to laugh and chuckle and then they land and I lose it because all these things start to happen at once. Um, We get the crew walking down the runway in this epic shot, you know, arms out, proud, chest high or chest out head high um grace is running to aj and jumping into his arms we see the the crowd part and chicks xy for estranged wife and his son there come running out at him um we see aj going up to truman uh to give him the mission patch <laughs> you know and he's like you know 
he doesn't know why. <laughs> that's that's the beauty of it to me is AJ has no clue what he's doing. He's just like he's just following a man's final wishes, you know, was one of them was give Truman this patch, make sure he gets it. And so he does that and he you can tell in his he's like, I don't know what's going on, but here. Harry wanted you to have this. And Truman just he's like, he did, did he? <laughs> yeah, he sure he did. Uh and then Colonel Sharp, man. Uh, and this is why I brought him up earlier is because I wanted to hit this moment. And you talked about the redemption up in up in space. Um and then this this means it brings a full circle for me. Uh because he goes up to Grace and he salutes her. Uh, and he says that Harry is the bravest man he's ever met. And, you know, for someone who has uh, just called this man, the same man, the most terrible mistake in the history of NASA, um, here he is, you know, being so proud of him to the man's daughter. And then the jets fly overhead and the missing man formation, and it just rolls into the, the theme song that I don't want to miss a thing. And, uh, I mean, I get, I get choked up, get choked up just talking about it, just remembering it because everybody has so much respect for each other at the end of this film, whether they're proud of someone that's passed away and they're displaying that to a loved one or whether they're, um, newly proud of themselves for something that they've accomplished that they never knew they had the strength in them to do. Uh, and it just, I, it's it's an incredible ending for me. Um, this is a movie, again, it, I just can't champion enough for the emotional connection that it provides. And it's a beacon. Um, it's a pillar in the way of the feeling film mentality that every film makes us feel something. And this one makes me feel everything. And this scene just culminates all that. So I'm going to, I'm going to shut up before I full on ugly cry on the air here. So you can uh, take it away and, you know, tell us what your connecting point was and let me stop rambling. Okay. (laughs) Just kidding. That was, that was really good stuff, man. I, I really, really loved the ending and it was hard for me not to pick that one as well. Uh, Just because I, I think like you, I feel like it's sort of a, like a cop out, like the ending is, yes, it has to be. And, uh, but there was one moment that really resonated with me. And it was the moment that Harry heads down to the surface with AJ after they draw straws and AJ's drawn the, the, I guess the short one, short one, short one. And I don't remember what my initial reaction was the first time I saw this. I was in college and, but as a dad and as an adult, I remember being so connected to both AJ and Harry. Because throughout the whole movie, Harry's been giving AJ a bunch of crap about, you know, you're not good enough for my daughter. And AJ's like, I love your daughter. I want to marry her. I'm going to marry her. And we don't really know what the resolution of that is because it's always been tense. I think there's only, there's one moment that I remember when Harry and AJ are getting on their respective shuttles and Harry is about to say something. AJ goes, I won't screw up or I'll try not to screw up for you. But all the banter and everything that had culminated to that moment really paid itself off when he pulled AJ's oxygen tube. And you could tell in that moment that he was thinking, some, both of them were thinking so many things, but particularly Harry because the, the camera was just on his face. There was despair 
there was sadness because he was giving up something. He knew what he was giving up by not being able to see his daughter again. He knew that there was potential that AJ was going to hate him for the rest of his life. AJ's life, obviously Harry wasn't going to be living very much longer. And then he pushes AJ into the, the elevator shaft or whatever and closes it. And then we see AJ's face and we see him just crying like, no, this was supposed to be me. This was supposed to be me. And we see AJ crying and we see the greatest single man tear ever produced. Yes. Yes, it was. By Bruce Willis. Um, I don't know if we see it then or if we see it when he's talking to his daughter, but we see so many emotions and so many feelings wrapped up in both of their faces. And I can't even describe it because it felt so heavy to me. I mean, I was in that moment with them and it was just, ugh. and I remember watching this with my wife and she turned around and I see her doing her, what she calls her ugly cry. And she goes, see, I already know it's going to, I already knew this was going to happen. And I did it anyway. And she's, she's exactly. granted, she, she's more emotional than me. But I, I think I think movies like this have power when they can emit that kind of response. Not just tears, but just get get you to a place where you can't describe what you're feeling because you're so connected to these characters who probably don't know what they're feeling. It's like it's it's a real moment of empathy. And when I saw both of their faces in that moment, I felt extreme empathy for both of them because I couldn't say I know what you're feeling and I know what you're feeling because I'm like, I don't know what you're feeling. I mean, you're feeling everything and nothing at the same time. And it made me sad and it made me not happy, but it made me joyful in some ways because I could see what I, I knew what the sacrifice that was being made. And it was just like this moment that things changed. Like AJ was now taking care of Harry's daughter. Like that was, it was almost like Harry's way of saying, this is my blessing. And I think I remember him saying, I love you, son. He does. <laughs> he does. And then yeah. AJ says, I love you back. And, and, and it, I just like, whoa. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, it's just that moment of, 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 of tenderness and humanity between those two wasn't, it, it didn't come out of the blue. I mean, all that tension, all that banter, we kind of knew that they had a relationship, that they... They cared about each other, but that moment, it, it was really close to the, to the scene and I guess it was the Wrath of Calm where Spock says, you, will, you are and will always forever be my friend, I think. Mm-hmm. It, it's that same kind of thing where you don't have to see their genuine sincerity for each other. You know it based on how the movie has, has, has portrayed them. I mean, there's tension there but there's tension for good reason. Uh, even one point, I think chick it's the, it's the great scene when, uh, when, when AJ's singing, um, all my bags are packed. I'm ready to oh, go. I love that chunk. scene so much. It's, it's a great scene. And then Harry looks at chick and goes, doesn't take anything seriously. <laughs> and chick goes, sounds like somebody I used, I to, used know. to know. Just a great hint that he's just like you, man. I mean, he, he is, I mean, he is your son. I mean, in, in more ways than you can think. And so that moment for me was, was very impactful. Good pick. Good pick. Um, you can't argue with it. <laughs> like I said, I had a handful 
that I could talk all day about, and that's that's on the list. I do think that the single man tier comes when he's talking to Grace. It is. Now that it I, is. I just I just now remembered it. Yeah. Now that I remember that, and gosh, is that scene hard too, man? Where he just says, uh, you know, she, she's like Harry, um, I lied to you, and she's and you know she says I am like you, mm-hmm. um, and everything good in me is because of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and she calls him daddy and she says daddy and he's like and his last his last words are just simply gotta go now honey and it's just oh it's killer and i think that's what you hit on in there um and what i was trying to hit on in mine as well that it's just the film is so packed with those relationships it's not just one you know most movies you get maybe one impactful relationship it's this guy and this guy and everything around them is kind of happening, but it's really about these two characters. It's about Harry and AJ, so, say for example, but in this, you have Harry and AJ. That's so powerful. You have Harry and Truman, you have Harry and Grace, um, you know, you have chicken hair. I mean, you have Harry and every Harry is, seems to be the spoke on this, but you know, you have, <laughs> but, but everybody has that intense, different, unique, connected relationship um, that makes the drama so incredibly powerful. Oh, so I just got to say thank you, Patrick, for letting us cover this um, and talk about it. Well, I enjoyed it. I'm I'm glad, and I hope that uh, you all have enjoyed listening to this. If you have, please let us know what you think of the episode. You can follow us on social media. Uh, we are at Feelin' Film, F-E-E-L-I-N-F-I-L-M, on Twitter, Facebook, feelinfilm.com there's also a facebook discussion group you can come be a part of if you'd like there's a link to that on the website link to that on the facebook page Um, we rolled out last week our new hashtag feel this film and we've already gotten some cool recommendations and one really not so good recommendation so please no more old superman recommendations ixnay on that jason Uh, jason ward has already claimed the only one we're going to allow it's the only one worth doing that's considered, you know, second chance or whatever. <laughs> oh man, you're going to have to twist my arm to get that one. But uh no, for can real. We tra- can we yeah, can we trade off Armageddon for Superman 3? Is oh, that <laughs> I might have lost my bargaining power. Um yeah, so the feel this feel this film hashtag. Uh, we really like your recommendations so far. Keep those coming. Um it's exciting to us to see what you want us to talk about uh, and then try to work some of those into the show in the future. Patrick Oh, before I say Patrick, I guess I should tell you where you can find me. You can find me personally uh, all over the interwebs at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E, Facebook, Twitter, and if you're a gamer, PS4 and Steam as well. Fantastic, man. And you can find me on Twitter at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H, same username and uh, on Facebook as well as you can visit my website, thisispatch.com. Next week, we have something of, uh, this was the, uh, the, what was it, the, the second place vote? Very for, closely, one vote below. Yeah, for our poll last week, we're going to be reviewing Sing Street, which I'm pretty excited about. It's from the writer-director of Begin Again, which I really, really enjoyed. And Once, which I really, really enjoyed. So there we go. We have two movies that, both of us enjoyed and have you seen begin again i have i like them both and 
And Sing Street's getting a ton of buzz. I don't know about you, but I've I've had some friends recently on my Facebook feed that have watched it this past week. And dude, I have not heard a bad word about this. I'm really, really excited to watch this movie next week. Good deal. Me too. I'm 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 pretty jazzed myself. So tune in next week while we uh prepare for that one. And we'd love to hear um any at this point, any spoiler free reviews that you guys have on Sing Street. Yep, sounds good to me. And uh, I believe it's on Amazon right now and iTunes if uh, anybody out there wants to check it out before our episode on it next week so you can listen to us without worrying about spoilers. And maybe you'll get to hear us sing because it is not quite a musical, but kind of like a musical. Yes, something like that. (laughs) All right, Patrick. Well, this film, more than most, has definitely hit me in the feeling area. Uh, But... I guess it's time to go. So until next time, stay positive and keep feeling film.